0: All right, so I've entitled the sermon today, An Unspectacular Miracle. There is no such thing. We know that every miracle is spectacular, and it's on its way. So the, the, the title not, is not because of the reality that the, the miracle that happens is not spectacular. It's, it's because of the way that Jesus carries out this miracle is somewhat unspectacular. This government official, official today in our passage approaches Jesus and he asks him for him to heal his son, for his son is on the verge of dying. And Jesus makes a statement about signs and wonders. And then the man, seeming to get exasperated, because Jesus has kind of started teaching, he says, come down and, and heal my son. And Jesus says, go, your son will live. And the man leaves, believing Jesus. He gets home and he finds out that at the very moment that Jesus spoke those words, his son was healed. Unspectacular. No fireworks, no no show of, you know, no P. T. Barnum show going on. Jesus just tells the man, go. Your son will live. Spectacularly unspectacular. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Jesus doesn't have to travel 20 miles to lay his hand on the child, although we see him do that in other times. Because uh, he, he knows what people need. And he's meeting felt needs and real needs along the way. But here, he speaks the word, and the child is well. Isn't that, isn't that encouraging? That, we go to Jesus wondering if he can do something spectacular, um, something that's definitely spectacular to us. But for him, it's common. He made everything. He can heal everything. Now we struggle with that because we wonder why he doesn't heal everything all the time. Especially for us. We trust him. He is good. All right, let's read the scripture and see how the uh, the apostle John lays uh, this story out for us. We're going to read from John chapter 4, verses 46 down through the end of the chapter there. Uh, this is the, the very word of God, holy, infallible, inerrant, it's authoritative. God has given it to us that we would know him rightly, that we'd know ourselves rightly, and walk rightly with him all the days of our lives. Uh, John four forty six. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he said, and he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Would you help us to live according to it, to be encouraged by it, to be challenged by it? Even Would you help us to believe in your word, in the word of Jesus, the way this man did? To trust you and walk in faith. Help us to do that every moment of every day every, and throughout our lives. That we might live for you and for your glory. God, you are good to us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, this story reminds us of two things, I think. Uh, more than that, but at least two things uh, that I want to point out. The first is that sickness and death do not discriminate. From all, from all that we can tell, this is a rich guy. It's a powerful guy. He's probably an administrative assistant to King Herod of some sort in that region. This guy has the resources of the world at his disposal, but yet his son is dying. Sickness and death don't discriminate. Being rich and powerful doesn't protect you from the sorrow and hardship of this world. Like I said, the man in this story is described as an official uh, the language he's making us think that he's probably a Roman, a Gentile working for King Herod. But regardless of who he is or what standing he has in society, we're meant to feel the urgency of this situation. This is a desperate man. His son is at the point of death and everything about him is a vision of, of desperation. So we should all be able to feel these things along with this man as we read the story. We've, we've all likely lost someone close to us. And, and if it's one of our own children, that will be even more powerful emotionally. And that's where this man is, on the verge of that. And we need to feel that with him. There's, there's grave fear in this man's life. We can't truly understand this text unless we understand this man's desperation and his exasperation at not being able to get the help that he needs uh, for his son. You know, I think about Ryan and Didi this week watching... Their son is the suffering, not knowing what's causing these seizures and, and asking, what, what, what's going on? Can someone just give me an answer? I know they're there because we're there with Andrew, sort of. We all have been there. What's causing this? What's going on? Where's this coming from? Will it stop? And all of these things, we want answers. We want healing. And one of the hardest human trials has to be watching your kids suffer and being unable to get the help that they need. But there's good news here that we need to be reminded of as well. Just as sickness doesn't discriminate against uh, regarding who it attacks, Jesus also doesn't discriminate. In John chapter 3 and 4, we've seen Jesus interact with a prominent Jewish leader, Nicodemus. We've seen him interact with a notorious sinning Samaritan woman at the well in Samaria. And now he's talking to this Roman official who's a Gentile. And he's ministering to him as well. Jesus is ministering to everyone. This pattern follows the pattern that we see in Acts with the apostles. In Acts 1-8, before ascending, Jesus told them, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth, to the Gentiles. And as we go and read the book of Acts, we'll see that it starts there. They're doing ministry in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria. And by the time it's over, we see Paul going to the ends of the earth that they knew, as far as he could go, to take the gospel, even to the Gentiles. To us and so there's good news that the mercy of God doesn't discriminate either. Jesus's mercy and ministry knows no bounds. But the, there is a question here to consider in, in this passage, and as we think about this, you know, the we're told that the in verse 50 that the official believed the word that Jesus had spoken to him and went on his way. Um, does that mean that this guy has personal saving faith? And I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know that we can answer it. I'm not sure uh, what that is. But we do know that he had faith that Jesus could save his son. And he walked in that belief. He, he, he believed Jesus could do the immediate thing. But what we see is that God, Jesus, through this sign and wonder of healing this kid, by the end of this passage... This man's not only believed and put his faith in Jesus, and we, it seems to be talking about in a larger sense, in a personal saving way, his whole household has believed. And so we're going to talk about signs and wonders in a minute, but what we need to see for up front is that Jesus uses these signs and wonders to build and, and show his glory and build faith, to draw people to himself. Is it always signs and wonders? No. We're going to talk about that in a minute too. But Jesus does use these things. It was his faith. This man's faith was spurred on by the signs and wonders of Jesus. It seems to be what God uses to draw this man and his household to himself. So, what does Jesus mean before that when he stops and he says, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe? So, you get the picture, right? This desperate, exasperated man comes. He's probably has come straight from Capernaum. So he's probably been moving quickly, running, get, had kitchen a ride, something to get from Capernaum to Cana as fast as he can. It's about 20 miles. In our day, we go, well, that's nothing. But in that day, that's you know, a day's journey, maybe more than a day's journey. And so he shows up. And he says, you know, my son's dying. Come. I hear you can heal. Come heal my son. And Jesus says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. I don't need a lecture. I need my son healed. Now there's probably a crowd there. The you there is plural. Jesus is not just talking to him, although the text says he is talking to him. He's talking to everyone. So what is going on? What is Jesus saying when he stops and says this? What's he wanting to communicate? What's he teaching us uh, and, and them in that day? Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. First, I think two things. First, Christ is simply stating a fact. That this man is not going to truly believe in Christ unless he sees signs and wonders. Particularly the power of Christ on display healing his son. That's what he's looking for. He is one track mind. And and at this point Jesus sees his need. Maybe Jesus is just recognizing his need. There's a fact here. You're not going to believe unless this happens. Unless you see this wonder on display. But second. And and Josh Moody in in his commentary on this passage says that. He thinks Christ is letting us know here. That that Christ longs for a world where signs aren't necessary. There's almost an exasperation from Christ on display here a little bit. When this guy comes and says, do this miracle for me. And Jesus goes, you won't believe without signs and wonders. Can you just trust me. <laughs> just believe in me. It's, it seems to be what's going on. Jesus longs for a world where... Where people trust him for who he is rather than what he can do for them. Without the, the fireworks of miraculous displays of supernaturally impressive wonders. It, people seem to be looking for the fireworks. And Jesus says, I'm I'm what you need. That my person who's able to do these wonders. But it's about me. And, and as we go through the Gospel of John. We're going to see sign after sign after sign. Gospel, the, the Gospel of John is sort of a. a a liturgy of signs and wonders along the way. We get to the end of the gospel and and John tells us the purpose of his gospel. We looked at this back at the beginning when we first started this study. And John tells us that the signs that Jesus did are, are central to the story. He said there are many more signs that Jesus could have done. He says, but... They were not They were never purposeless. The signs are never purposeless. They serve a purpose. And what is that purpose? He says, they were recorded here, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So what's the point? Jesus may heal your son. But if you don't trust in him, your son's going to die again. And so are you. And so to just have signs and wonders is temporary. They point you to glory, but we've got to embrace the glory. The glory of Jesus in full. The glory that came to lay itself down rather than lift itself up. He came to lay down himself. And by laying himself down, he was lifted up. And we will be with him. But the point of Jesus coming although he's able to do the signs and wonders, his greater work is giving himself fully for the salvation of his people. And so we see that, that signs are given that, so that we may believe that Jesus is teaching that we aren't just to rely on signs. You know, later, after Jesus had risen from the dead, he tells Doubting Thomas, after letting Thomas touch his wounds. remember Thomas was like, is it really you? I don't know, how do I know it's you? And Jesus is like, touch me. Put your hand in my side. I, I'm real. I've really risen from the dead. But then Jesus tells Thomas, he says, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Hebrews 11.1 one says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Romans 10.17 says that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. God... As I mentioned earlier, in his providence and wisdom often meets our felt needs and our real needs, sometimes through signs and wonders, through miracles, to increase our faith and to to reveal his glory. And then sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he doesn't give us the healing that we long for. But he calls us to trust him in all of those circumstances. We have to have the faith to run to Jesus and ask for what we need. This man was willing to do whatever it took to get before this man, Jesus, who was rumored to have the power to heal. We have even more reason to run to him. To pray fervently and even to pray with desperation at times. For we know that he is the Christ. I don't know what this man thought Jesus was. But we know. Because we've got the book. We've seen the history. We know what what Jesus went on to do. Jesus went on to lay his life down. He is the Christ. He has been raised from the dead, and he lives forever, and he's making intercession for us at the right hand of the Father. And so I hope that this passage spurs us on to run to Jesus like this man did, to run quickly to the one who has the power to act on our behalf. You know, when I think about stories like this in the Bible, and in this story in particular, I'm guilty of reading stories like this in different ways according to how life is going at any moment. There are times when things are going great and I presume upon the mercy of God that he's going to solve all my problems and heal all my wounds. And so I read the story and I go well sure Jesus did that. That's what Jesus does. Things are great. You know. But that isn't the case. Jesus, well God loves me and, and just like with all of us he ordains that that I experience many different joys and pains in life. And I think this is because God knows exactly what I need at any moment. He knows that sometimes pleasure and ease will lead me towards faithfulness. Maybe rarely. They tend to lead to self-centeredness most of the time for me. But he also knows, because he's perfectly wise, that there are other times when hardship and suffering are the things that will lead me to faithfulness and dependence upon him and reveal his faithfulness to me. Now that doesn't mean I'm always happy and content about where he has me at any given moment. I don't wake up in the moment on the hard day and go, well, I'm so glad God's given me this today. He's for me. I don't feel, no, we don't feel that in the moment. But it's true. But it's true. And so I think that living by faith means that we trust that he knows what is best for us and he loves us enough to give us what is best for us, even if what is best for, it isn't best for us isn't pleasant for us. It's hard truth. It's hard to to get. Because there are many times we wouldn't choose those pathways for ourselves. But I've actually learned over time that when things are bad, and moments of desperation, the ones like this man felt, it's pretty easy for me to run to God and to fling myself on his mercy and to cry out for him to... To be God for me in that moment. I also found that I'm pretty quick on the other side to acknowledge him and say thanks when things are going really well. Something spectacular happens. Some victory happens. And I'm quick to go, thank you God. But what about those moments in between? What about the the many mundane moments? Those just okay moments of life. It's then that I have a tendency to forget that God created me to be dependent on him. That I should actually walk by faith. Not just in moments of celebration and faith. Or in moments of desperation crying out to him in faith. But in those just average moments of life. To walk with him even then. Because look, God is God in the greatest moments. In the worst moments. And in every mundane moment in between. The mundane moments are just as important as the big moments because in the, in the mundane moments of our lives when it's quiet, we're getting a few minutes alone or we're sitting and talking with a friend or maybe we're just at work and we're in a meeting that goes on every week and seems to be purposeless and never ends and we're just, what in the world is happening? It's often those moments that give us true insight into who we are and what's going on in our hearts and how we understand God and how we understand how we relate to people and all of those things. Look, the big moments in life can change us in dramatic ways. We know they're important, they can change the course of our life when something tragic happens. But the mundane moments drive our character and reveal who and what we love and reveal what we're truly living our lives for. You know, most importantly, I think it's who we are in the mundane moments that reveals whether we're prepared for the life-changing, the especially tragic moments that may come into our lives. It's what we think about all the time that's going to determine how we react when the world seems to be falling down around us. Will we run to Christ because we have a living and abiding faith with him? Or are we going to turn to our own resources because every day we just depend on us? And the things around us. Or we're going to live by faith. And so you, we can ask ourselves: when I have five minutes alone, where do my thoughts go? Parents of young children, you can just dream about having five minutes alone. That's okay. You'll get to this eventually. There's hope down the road. But look, it, when you're sitting alone, when when you're sitting alone, where, where do your thoughts go? I'm not going to suggest that in those moments you have to always be thinking these big, magnanimous thoughts about God, those things. But I do want you to consider that the things that you think about in those moments, those daydreaming moments, they define who you are and what you need. to, And, and, and we all need to consider what difference a sovereign and, a sovereign and loving and providential God makes and how we think about those things in those, those moments. Not just in the big moments. But even in the little moments, God is still God. And those little moments prepare us for these moments like this official has today when his life is fallen down and his son's about to die. And he's desperate. Paul Tripp goes so far as to say, he says, if God doesn't rule your mundane, then he doesn't rule you. Because the mundane is where you live. You know, there are other times that I'll read a story like this one when I compare my own faith with the faith of this guy and I wonder... If God can really truly love me when my faith is so weak. You know, I wonder, will God do these kind of miracles for me? There, there are times when I wonder if God can truly work through me or whether he can change my sin patterns or whether he can change my kids or heal my relationships with them when there's strife in my home or, you know, whether he can heal my family's sicknesses. I wonder if he can provide for me when my finances are strained. I can go on and on and on about all these things. And we all could. And then I read this story and I see this man's faith and I wonder, will I ever have faith like that? But this is what we need to know. What saved this man's son was not the degree of his faith. Although it was great. Like we said, he probably ran 20 miles to see this guy. That he had heard about. But the degree of his faith didn't save him. What saved him was the object of his faith. He could have run 20 miles in the other direction to another notable character of some sort, and he may have already done that. He's likely been to every medical doctor, every witch doctor, every faith healer that he could find. And he could have ended up before one of those that day. And his son wouldn't have been healed. But here... Full of desperation, willing to run anywhere. What makes the difference in this man's story? He ran to Jesus. And at the end of the day, his faith was in Jesus. He had probably put his faith in lots of things. But he's finally found an object of his faith that's worthy of the glory that comes. Jesus is the center of this story. It's easy for us to read the story and go, this man is the center of the story. This man is not the center of the story. He's an important part. But Jesus is the reason this man's son is healed. Because he ran to Jesus. And Jesus makes all the difference in the world. We have nowhere else to run. Sure, we should go to doctors. We should pray for miracles. From, from Jesus, of course. We should do, oh, there's nothing wrong with trying to find solutions. But we don't leave Christ out of this. He is the great healer. God is the one who provides the healing, the salvation that we need. May we run to the one who loves us so much that even while we were still sinners, he laid down his life that we might live truly, abundantly, eternally. Run to Jesus. That's the point of the story. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, would you help us to run to Jesus? So many things in this world compete for our worship, for our faith. But God, only Christ can redeem us. God, we're thankful that you give us hope, not just for our souls, but even for our bodies. That you can heal us. You can heal us and our children and those things. Oftentimes, You don't. Would you help us to trust you even in those moments? To run to you. Even when things don't go the way that we hope they would. Wish they would. Or desperate for them to go. God also help us to remember to give thanks when things do go. Towards healing. Towards being made full. Towards life. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for Jesus who died. That we might have not just hope here. But hope eternally. Help us to run to him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.